welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast, where we talk to teachers about everything education. Our guest today is an old friend who's currently a high school teacher and a comedian, which is something I just recently found out. Uh, stalking you online, I was uh, I ran across your TikTok page, and I'm, I'm a fan, I have to say. And what an interesting skill set to have, comedian, teacher, high school. That's That must be so awesome. I, I want to hear more about it. So welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the kind words. Um, yeah, it's, I got into comedy a little bit in college and then I started up a couple of years into teaching and about a month or two into doing comedy, I felt very much like I was just sort of like blending in with every other five, nine white dude, Jewish talking about the exact same topics. And I was like, I, and I was reading Judd Apatow's book at the time. And she had a line in there about all people are really interested in is your story and what you're thinking about. And being a teacher, all I was thinking about was teaching. So I just sort of aggressively steered into the niche of I'm going to be the teacher comedian. And that's where all of my best material has come from. So it's been an interesting double life for the last several years. Yeah, I was listening to some of your uh, little clips, obviously, on TikTok, not the whole shows. And yeah, all of the comedy that I heard uh, was one, hilarious. And two, it was all uh, specific to the classroom or, or just education in general. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it is most of my best jokes come from there. And I feel like what I what I'm, I do get nervous about students finding it so far. I don't know that that's happened. And I get nervous about two things. I get nervous about them misinterpreting jokes and I get nervous about them thinking that I'm only with them for material because I take both both jobs seriously and I try to do my best at both of them. But I, I really don't want my students to ever feel like I'm just there for material because really most of my jokes I like to try or I strive for, they're more self-deprecating about how I don't feel up to the impossible task that is teaching. <laughs> um, and so they're more self-deprecating about me. But a couple of years ago, most of my videos were protected for a long time. And, and one class did somehow found one. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> and my opening joke at the time, I don't mind saying it on the show, was um, I don't even, most comedians want to make the audience laugh. I don't care if I bomb because I'm a teacher. So even when I do bomb, it's just nice for me to talk to a quiet group of people, <laughs> right? And students somehow found that joke. And for whatever reason, the way that they misinterpreted it, whether it was intentional or otherwise, they thought I said, talk to a white group of people. Oh, And so they're all saying to each other, oh, Elberg only does jokes for white people. <laughs> and I was like, that's not even, that's one, not true. And two, not even what I said in the clip. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so stuff like that is what is what scares me with it. But so far, I haven't had any issues with the double life. So it's been good. Yeah, I mean, um, we are an anonymous show, but we always, you know, if, if people want to share uh, who they are and, and what they do on the side, they, they can absolutely share um, of their own volition. So if you feel like sharing that, feel free to do that. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm at Brian Elberg on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, I guess, also, although I use that one probably the least. Um, and I do have my own podcast on teaching also called What Do You Teach, which is all linked in there. So people can definitely look me up and yeah. Yeah, I've been listening, man. It's been really good. I mean, you've um, started a, a little while, short while ago, it feels like, but um, you've got some really cool guests on there, too. I was listening to most recently a, a particular episode about uh, race in the classroom which I thought was really interesting. I'm interested in the topic very much and what you said and what your guest was sharing was really uh, eye-opening, but also you guys really simplified the whole thing about critical race theory um, and brought some easy language around it, which was really refreshing. Sure. Thank you so much. And I think that 
what the show is, the premise of the show is basically talking about the best theories in education and sort of the lofty ideals that we often sort of talk about and the distance between those ideals and what's actually happening for teachers in their classrooms every day. And so it's a lot of sort of demystifying those buzzwords and there's no buzzier word right now than critical race theory. And all, none of the discussion I've heard about critical race theory, either one reflects what I understand critical race theory to mean or two reflect what's actually happening in schools. So on that episode, I had Dr. Jania Hoover on who wrote an excellent article on Vox, I believe. And we just, we got into sort of breaking it down what's actually happening in classrooms, what actually is meant when people talk about critical race theory, because, you know, I see, I see I'm probably too online nowadays, but I see a lot of videos of parents at these school board meetings saying the school is telling my kids that they need to hate themselves because they're white. And it's like one, that's not what critical race theory is. Two, I do not, me and no teacher that I've ever spoken with anywhere has, has either done that, seen that happening, or actually heard of a teacher telling students, you should hate yourself for being white. And then I feel like the defenders of critical race theory nowadays, they say like, well, what do you want us to not teach black history? And it's like, no one is also saying we should not teach black history. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the conversation, like most conversations about schools, quite frankly, seems to be totally separate from what actually goes on in the classrooms, which is why I started my podcast to sort of try to bridge these ideas and talk about that difference. Yeah. Why do you think that is, though? I mean, I feel like um, we seem to not have the patience to think through things uh, in general as a society. A lot of times, especially complex topics like critical race theory or any other theory or or even evolution, for example, <laughs> uh, a non-education related theory. But still, folks don't seem to spend enough time to actually dissect these concepts and understand for themselves and go straight at what the rumors are that are flying around these concepts. And then they just take off so quickly. Yeah, I think it's just easier, I guess, right? It's just easier for you to be like, oh, critical race theory is in the news and I can sort of go viral or I can get my name out there or I can, or I can sort of gain followers or gain an audience or get more votes or whatever it is by sort of latching onto this movement without actually taking the time to sit and think and reflect because people like reactions, people like extreme views. And it's always so strange with education specifically, where like in New York, for example, where I live, um, people hate Bill de Blasio. And I've never quite understood the level of vitriol seems to be disproportionate to what he actually is, has done um, <laughs> compared to, I mean, our last two mayors were Giuliani and Bloomberg. So it's not like, you know, he, there was some great tradition before. It's so personal with him. <laughs> yeah. It's very, it's very odd. Um, but he passed universal pre-K is something that, that he started to implement. And we won't really see the effects of that for years. Sure. Right. But for some reason, people are already willing to declare it a, like a failure and declare him a failure and everything like that. And again, it's like whether or not it is a failure, we won't even know for a long time. And people don't have patience for that. It's tough to win an election on. We'll see in six years whether that law was a good idea. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back to you a little bit. Um, sure. How did you end up being a teacher anyway? What was your journey to the profession? And then also just tagging on or continuing comedy? Sure. Um, so I went to college and I was not, I went to college at Boston University and I was not someone who knew what I wanted to do when I started college. I didn't know what job I wanted to be at all. And I decided I was going to major in political science. And around my sophomore year, I said, I don't know what job I'm going to go into, but maybe I'll be a teacher because I liked, I obviously have a lot of energy. I like sort of performing and I cared about, and I'd read all these 
I'd taken all these political science classes where we talked about like the transformative impact that education can have on society. And I thought this seems like it could be a good combination of skills I have and interests I have. And I signed up for a class in education at BU School of Education. And it was one semester and it was a combination of student teaching and lectures and learning about terms. And I loved the student teaching. I was paired with this outstanding teacher in Brookline, Massachusetts. She was an eighth grade history teacher named Kathy Fisher Mueller, a legend. She was excellent. And I loved working with her in the classroom. But the lectures on teaching, I like couldn't stand. I remember being like, I don't see how it's helpful for teaching kids to be memorizing these flashcards about like what John Dewey thought in 1907 or whatever. I was like, I don't, I don't see the connection. It's, it's, the kids are running around the school. I don't, I'm not going to be chasing after them with flashcards being like, oh, well, well how would, what would John Dewey do in this situation? Um, but I was because of that, I didn't actually transfer to the School of Education, but I remember I sort of knew about this program called Teach for America that could take people who were, um, as I put it in my, in my comedy, um, people who dreamed of being teachers for their entire second half of their senior year of college. Um, and I knew that it was a program to take people who had not been trained teachers that are college graduates and help get them jobs as teachers. And so I applied to TFA and I was accepted and I was placed in New York. And in those three years, I guess two years of TFA, and I stayed at that school for an additional year, I fell in love with teaching and being in the classroom with kids and all of that work. But I didn't fall in love with quote unquote education. My, my school was a mess in many ways. My principal and I didn't get along whatsoever. We had a whole argument over this donors choose project I did. There was a lot of stuff that going on at that school that was, to put it kindly, bad pedagogy and to put it less kindly, probably illegal, but a lot of, <laughs> and so, but I just fell in love with teaching. I fell in love with the lesson planning, the joking around with kids, the, all of the sort of trying out new ideas and new lessons in my classroom and all of that I loved. And comedy started around that third year. And it started because I had done a couple of random comedy shows in college and I just, it's a similar skill set to teaching in the sense that it's preparing something to say in front of people. And also they're very similar in the sense that the only thing that matters in both fields is what the quote unquote audience thinks of you. Right. Right. I've worked with a lot of teachers and I've been this teacher myself at times, right? So that was a great lesson, even though they didn't learn anything. Yeah. And I see comedians do the same thing where they're like, oh, that was a great set, even though no one laughed once for 20 minutes. And it's like in both cases, you, that inherently cannot be true. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters right. what the people you are trying to serve. Think. Exactly. And I think that though, that mindset definitely overlaps in both of those fields. And then after that, after that first school, I ended up actually, this is like a scene from a movie, how I ended up at the second school. But uh -huh. I was walking home. And I was feeling disillusioned with education in general. And I remember thinking like, uh, we, high school needs an overhaul that what we're doing, like, this just doesn't make sense. The education system and all these issues. And I looked up, I was like kicking a can down the road and I looked up and I saw a giant sign that said XQ project, rethinking high school. And mm. I thought, what is this? This is exactly what I want to do. And I went home and I Googled XQ project, rethinking high school. And it was um, a fund started by Steve Jobs' widow, where they were giving $10 million grants to all these different schools. And I swear, like a movie, oh, there's one in Brooklyn. And I clicked it. <laughs> and it, I clicked this link. It says, open house for founding faculty tomorrow. 
Wow. I said, I'll go to that. That sounds like exactly <laughs> what I So I show up, I interviewed with the principal and they or the founders of the school. And they said, yeah, great. You're <laughs> come back to a lesson next week. And a week later I had a, I had a job there. Um, and so I taught there for a couple of years, helped start that school, which was um, a wild ride. And, and what did you teach? I taught um, algebra there, ninth grade algebra. Cool. I taught there for two years and that school, we, the turnover was insane at that school. We had, mm. I was there for two years. We had four principals. Wow. We had, I went from being the youngest and least experienced teacher in my first year to the oldest and most experienced teacher in my <laughs> second year. And that, so then, uh, you know, lots of turnover after two years, including myself, I ended up leaving to go to graduate school again to get a master's in school leadership at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And then I came back to New York last year where I am still doing high school math. And now I'm at uh, New Visions School in the Bronx. Oh, cool. I've heard of them. Uh, the New Visions curriculum people. Yes, that's us. Yeah, yeah very cool. Very cool. Uh, so you touched a little bit on this idea of like, what are some of the things that you loved about teaching? Mm. And you also mentioned that you were disillusioned about certain things. So can you share a little bit more about what specifically did you really enjoy about the work? And what specifically did you <laughs> did not like about the sure. work? So I always say my favorite moments of teaching are, I think throughout the year, most of my focus is typically on what I would call like student outputs, right? Student achievement. Early on in my career, I was obsessed with region scores, like, like obsessed. And it was like, I shamelessly taught to it the test um, because and on the one hand, that's not ideal, but on the second, it's like kids need these exams to graduate from high school. And so if I can do everything I can to get 90% of my kids to pass this exam instead of 50, that um, matters a lot. And, it, and I'm a very goal-oriented person. So there is something that was very attractive to me about that work. But the stuff I remember most is just the pure, the moments of like pure joy and laughter with kids and connections and the hugs and, <laughs> and all of those things. I had a student my first year who had an imaginary pet cow. <laughs> and every day he would just sort of have his hand to do something like this. And he would sort of jokingly talk to it. And then one day he comes into class and he's it's really sad. And I said, Hey man, like what's going on? And he goes, Mr. Alberg, Winston, the cow, he died. <laughs> I don't know if I should <laughs> laugh kind of, or be sad. <laughs> and he kind of smiles and I start <laughs> smiling and I go, guys, we need to have a moment of silence for this cow. <laughs> and the whole class and this is, is high school. Yeah, the whole class is silent. Oh, the whole, wow. the whole class is silent. The, by the way, a class that had never once been silent for anything, <laughs> ever, not a math lesson, they hadn't been silent once the whole year when I was begging them to be quiet so I could explain something. They were not silent. You should have had but an they imaginary were, pet. <laughs> they were silent for our 30 seconds for the imaginary cow. And so like those moments of just pure joy. I had students the other day just ma ruthlessly making fun of me because they said I'm a stereotypical white guy who lives my life. Like I'm in a Hallmark movie and the class was, <laughs> and just, they were just, you know, and we're all, I'm just dying laughing. Cause they're like, Oh, what did they say? They, they say like, Oh, I bet you met your, they said, I bet you're going to meet your wife when your hands touch in like a tip jar of a coffee shop. And just <laughs> like, it's just so funny. That's so smart. <laughs> so smart. So funny. I'm dying laughing. Yeah. And I, I said this to a student a couple of years ago, he was like, you know, these, the student was a really well-behaved kid. And they said, oh, how do you deal with these crazy kids every day? And I said, I laugh every day. <laughs> exactly. I, have a, I have a job where I, get, I know I'm going to laugh every single day. 
How many jobs are like that? It's un- <laughs> I always say, I, I don't know that there is a piece of, I don't know that there is any human behavior that could shock me anymore. Yeah. Like, I think that just be- between comedy, between being in like comedy clubs, you know, and seeing either comedians be insane or audience members be insane and students just doing, you know, silly things like that all day. You just see things happen now. And mm. I just go and living in New York City in general, I guess. But I just <laughs> see things happen. And I'm just like, oh, well, all right. That man is running around in his underpants, you know, and throwing <laughs> bread at birds. And uh, this guy over here is reading a math textbook from 1982. And, you know, but, uh, <laughs> all right. Just another, just another day. I, yeah. And I feel like I have friends who are like, oh, my goodness. You know, I'll tell them some I'll tell a friend a story from my classroom that I don't even realize is crazy. Right. And they're like, what? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. What happened? The kids, you know, the kids said that to you. And I'm like, yeah, isn't it hilarious? <laughs> yeah, I think that's what the strategy is. I think it's, um, you know, to laugh about it, to to coach yourself into enjoying the moment. Right. And and not taking it so seriously that it lets you, you know, puts you down or something like that, because that's it, it's also a hard, hard job in that way emotionally. Yeah, not taking it seriously and also not taking it personal, I think, yeah, is something that was that I learned early on that was pretty helpful for me. Like, because kids will come in and they'll be having, and I think this is something that is maybe when we talk about what's disillusioning, I feel like I feel like there's an idea that teachers should teachers talk about knowing your impact and the impact we can have on kids and how important our jobs are. And I I totally I'm into that. I totally agree with that. It's one of the reasons I like about it is that I feel like it's a job with meaning. But I think that we also need to remember, like, you're really you're with kids for one hour of the day in a 23 hour day. So you're not in total control of their emotions and their behaviors. And there's 10 million other things that happen to them throughout that day. So if a kid blows up in your class, okay, maybe sometimes it is because of poor classroom management, but it also could be because of what happened to the period before what they had for breakfast what went on at home that morning, what went on with their friends, what went on, you know, on their soccer team the day before. It could be because of any number of a million things. So to beat yourself up because you had one bad day, it, it's it's counterproductive. And yeah. I, I had a, one of my favorite principals said to me once, I said to him, what do you do when you feel like a bad teacher? Because I, I had a really rough day. And he said, just remember the teachings like baseball and that if you succeed one out of three times, you make the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I don't know if I totally agree with that, but there's there's value in thinking that way that, OK, you know, when a baseball player strikes out, they don't think I'm the worst player ever. They think, oh, I got a, another at bat later. I'll do my best with that one. I think in that, too, it's very, very much related to and has a lot in common with performance in general of any kind. Right. It's like you don't always knock it out of the park. It's performance in general is so intense because. Obviously, you're under a microscope in front of a lot of people in a classroom. That's your students and people who are just visiting and evaluating you based on a 15, 20 minute observation and whatnot. And all of that intensity makes you feel like you have to be the best possible teacher at all times. And then there's narratives in the media around teachers are responsible for X, Y and Z always. And those types of things are always like, that's the baggage you're always carrying as a teacher. And it makes it really hard to kind of let go of it and just take a breather. It makes it, it makes it super hard. And I think it, it does make me think of, you know, the thing about performance and comedy and in general thing about comedy also of they're like, 
you work on jokes like there's no it's so similar to teaching that you're sitting down you're writing a joke right and some of my favorite jokes are literally jokes i've thought of like as i'm walking to the stage and i'm like oh that could be funny and then there are other times where i write a joke and i'm like this is the best joke that's ever been written i'll be on the tonight show in two weeks with this joke they'll be talking about it all over new york and i'll go on stage that night and just bomb miserably just mm-hmm. not a not a cricket not a tee not a ha nothing mm-hmm. and again you can't take it personal you know you gotta say all right that joke bomb tonight let's maybe try the joke one more time let's tinker with it maybe it's too long maybe i need to adjust here and also knowing that like maybe this crowd is a crowd that doesn't like that type of humor so maybe i need to right. try this joke in another way or put it in another spot same thing with teaching same thing with you know same thing with trying a lesson and same thing on those days where you feel like a terrible comedian or a terrible teacher. Okay. I mean that, you know, it didn't work today, but that's not a reason to throw it all away and to think that you're bad at this in general. Yeah. And what have been other things that have gotten in the way of your work that have made teaching more difficult for you? I think it's a great question. Bureaucracy generally. Bureaucracy generally makes things more just they make things more difficult, right? Whether it is bureaucracy over a lesson plan, whether it's whether when I say a lesson plan, I mean Oh, new lesson plan template. Everyone needs to have this seven page lesson plan written out every day. And then if you don't have it written out, the narrative isn't, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be giving teachers a seven page lesson plan. It's typically, oh, you don't believe planning is important. And it's like, no, I believe planning is super important. I just don't think that this seven page lesson plan template, which I was not consulted on, is a good idea. (laughs) And I don't have the time. You haven't given me the time to write it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Exactly. So bureaucracy, I think, just gets in the way. So, you know, or oftentimes I feel like I've gotten feedback in the past where I can tell that the person giving me the feedback doesn't even believe it, but they're getting pressure from their higher up to sort of push all classrooms in a certain direction or stuff like this, right? I worked at a school several years ago on the first school I mentioned where the big initiative was exit tickets. We got to do exit tickets every class, every day. And I have no issue with exit tickets. They're, they're, they have their time in place. And I was teaching a double period, right? So the whole school would change classes except for me. The bell would ring and I would just keep going because I had my kids for two periods. And I got observed in that chunk of time in between, in between when the classes were changing everywhere else. And on my observation, the person doing it said, well, you didn't give an exit ticket. And I said, well, the class <laughs> is not over. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody exited. The class isn't over. Why should I give an exit ticket? And they said, you should give an exit ticket and then start again. What? And I was like, just because. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Just, you know, why not? Because it's an item because, on the checklist. Yeah, it's an item on the checklist. And I know that their boss is going to say to them, well, why didn't you get Mr. Elbert didn't give an exit ticket? Right. You know, and rather than them have that difficult conversation, they can just pass the buck along to me. So that level of bureaucracy definitely gets in the way. And then like a similar level of bureaucracy, right? There's something we've talked about um, in the past is people will come into your class, not know the kids, and they'll say something like, this student wasn't getting work that was on grade level. And it's like, well, it's March. I've known this kid all year. I know this kid needs to work on basic operations or something like that. And I'm very prepared when he masters the basic operations. I have the more advanced task right here that I'll give to him. But that's what he needs to work on. You know, so I know that, again, your boss needs you to, you know, your boss is going to get mad at you if kids aren't working on grade level. But like, let's not just throw these buzzwords and bureaucracies and checklists around and then not actually do sort of the harder, deeper work to make sure that kids are being held to high expectations and kids are actually doing good work in all their classes. Yeah, there's so much monitoring of teachers nowadays. I always said, 
that I wanted to be treated like the, the Mets. I'm a big baseball fan. And the Mets had a player, uh, Yoenis Cespedes, is one of my favorite mm-hmm. players ever. And he seemed to basically just be a separate entity from the team. They basically mm-hmm. seemed to pay him and he would sort of show up when he wanted to. And he was great. And I always said, that's how I wanted to be treated. Just let <laughs> me, just let me do it. Just let me, just let me teach my class. Trust I'll be me. great. I'll be great. Come observe me whenever you want. Come every day. Sit. I'll teach you in your office. I'll be great. But just please stay out of my way. That's all I want. Just let me do my own thing. Yeah. And, and you know, for a lot of people, teaching has been that for a long time. And then it's it's changed over the last 20, 30 years where there's been more eyes on you, more eyes in the room, more people in the room just looking at what you're doing and trying to figure out a way to tell you how to do it. <laughs> absolutely. My, my mom has been a teacher for almost 50 years including during the pandemic, she started a school in our garage for wow. neighborhood kids. She, I'll, I can send, send you pictures of it. She like went out to like staples and like bought rugs and put like chart paper on the walls. And um, she couldn't park in there during the, during the <laughs> winter, but she, but anyway, she's, she was a teacher for many, many years without ever being observed once. And then when she went to retire, she ended up instead of fully retiring, taking a part-time role at a charter school. And in this part-time role, she's observed, twice a month i mean the constant more times that she was observed in her whole 30-year career before that so yeah one of the things with that i i have a lot of thoughts around or ideas about observation how to feel about it but definitely this there's like so many things just in that element of our work where there's so much pressure that's put on you to make it look a certain way like you you have to put on a show for that day or that period or that block so you hit all of the all of the things on the checklist so that it doesn't affect your job you know there's also always this job security thing attached to it now you know you want to get a good reading rating a decent rating and no one's going to come and observe you over a period of time they're going to observe you in this one window of time on one day one period and anything goes wrong that's what's going on the record for you right you don't yep. get another chance a lot of times and one of the things i always get really you know annoyed by is still a lot of principals some 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 principals i guess uh, have this idea they want to see students doing different things you know differentiation or whatever they they want to they want to see everybody doing a different task <laughs> and and they're just so obsessed with this thing this like oh when i came but everybody was working on the same thing why <laughs> but what what's wrong with that why what, you know it's okay if they're working all working on the same thing and learning the same thing and why must i have 30 different things for 30 different students if that's what's not necessary and then everything is so and, and it's also like What's so interesting to me, which I, I, I like hear so much of my experience and what you just said, because maybe the day before you did have a bunch of different right. tasks or the day after you did, <laughs> but like not today. Right. And, and like the idea that the, their interpretation of that, in my experience, would then be, oh, so you don't believe in this is how you do it. Yeah. Like this is who you I, are. <laughs> we had a state visit once and they told me not to give a test on the day of a state visit. Right. And I was like, but. We've been what, the superintendent's, for this test. Yeah, the superintendent's <laughs> gonna the superintendent's like what they give tests at the school like right. he, he understands that some days you give tests in some classes but apparently they I, don't because yeah, that's a I, common refrain don't give a but, test when there's outsiders visiting you know your school so here's how i feel about outsiders coming into my classroom right i'm this is the second school i worked at in brooklyn we were we were rather high profile we had a group coming in from i think this was mark zuckerberg's charity mm-hmm. right so well, I have two stories actually about tech people coming in, but the first one is this one's funnier. 
Uh, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg's charity, they were going to come in and they were, we all knew all week, they're going to be in our class, you know, they're going to be coming around. And as I mentioned, this is year two. So I was the most experienced teacher in the school at this point, uh-huh. or one of them at least. And I see them coming in. So I had a feeling they were going to come to me. I see them coming in. It was like any other day. I had a really solid lesson. I thought I see them about to open the door. And I had my, probably my most compliant class that year was in there. Mm. And I just said, Hey guys, should I teach in a British accent the whole time this group is in here? (laughs) And they go, they go, yes, you should do that. Absolutely. (laughs) And so the door opens and I just, without, I don't address it. I just go, all right. So, you know, the why ass of toast right in this. And I don't even do good accents. <laughs> I just went right into it. That's okay, so when we look at it, this graph, you've got to see, you know, it goes straight away, you know, straight up right here. And then it goes down. And the kids are like, the kids are like trying hard to repress laughs. My principal is in the back, just like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? And it was That's just. Great. And we had three groups that period. And every time they left and I would go into this voice. And then when (laughs) they came back, I would just go right back into it. And right. So that was one another time. So this is just, again, to this idea of how it looks versus how it is. And I'll try to tell this story in the most efficient way possible. Right. But we had uh, Michael Dell coming to see our school. And if you, and I was teaching an elective at the time called basketball statistics. Mm-hmm. And I guess Michael Dell saw a list of the classes that we were teaching and he saw basketball statistics. And so he thought this sounds like the kind of class he wants to see. <laughs> Great. The thing is, it was kind of a trial elective. I had never taught it before. The kids who signed up, it turns out they were really into basketball, but not, <laughs> not so much statistics. <laughs> so yeah. like they thought we were basically going to be like playing basketball. Right. <laughs> so I'm doing my best with this class. I'm trying to show them on like Google Sheets. We're looking at like all these advanced analytics and I'm trying to, and uh, you know, two or three kids are really into it, but a lot of kids are just sort of like going through the motions and doing it. And the founder of the school knows Michael Dell is coming. So he comes to me and he says like, hey, when Michael Dell comes, I want to take some of our best students and put them in your basketball statistics class. What? And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You want to, I was like, What? <laughs> And he was like, yeah, because like he wanted Michael Dell to see like our best students. Of course. And I was like, if you do that in the class. (laughs) I was like, I was like, well, two things are true. One is our best, that group of students you wanted to put in were not people who knew anything about basketball. Right. I was like, just to let you know, like we're going to be making predictions about like what Larry Bird's three point percentage is. They're not going (laughs) to know what that is. And I said, second, I said, if you do that, I'm not going to teach anything. Like, if I see you bring these kids in, I'm not doing anything. I'll just stop doing everything. I won't do it. <laughs> and so they we, they come back and forth. They're, like, really upset that I'm, like, being difficult. And then I just said, I, I won't do it. I refuse to teach these students who are not mine. Right. And because, pretend. I mean, yeah. And think about what the message it sends to the other kids in the class. Right. That I mean, the, the, the message it's sending to them is that they're too, they're too dumb they're to be in enough. the class. Yeah, they're not good. It's, like, awful. So I just said I wouldn't do it. Finally, they at the at the twenty third hour they backed down and they they wouldn't they didn't bring him in there. They and, uh, to a different class. <laughs> I, no, they really so brought Michael Dell to me, but they didn't oh. they didn't try to shoehorn any kids in. Oh, good. Um, so if you go to the Dell Foundation website, it's still a big picture of me. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah, that's cool. Um, but I've had two different principals with two such con- contrasting visions of this 
of these observations and that whole idea of what you mentioned of what it looks like versus what it is. One principle on like the, the survey, the, the DOE survey, there was a question about, would you recommend uh, this school to a friend or family member? Mm-hmm. And I think 20% of the school said, yes, they would. And yes, instead of saying, <laughs> but instead of saying, well, why wouldn't you let's make the school a place where you can send friends and family. Sure. She said, if you wouldn't send, if you don't answer yes to this question, you're not on the team and you shouldn't be here. Wow. That's one vision of what leadership looks like. And another vision of what leadership looks like is my, one of my good friends, Ryan McCabe, guest on my podcast. Um, he would come into the classroom to observe all the time, maybe once a week, which was great. And if you were having one of those days that every teacher has where things weren't going right, the copies came out wrong, the kids were going crazy, you could just wave him out of the room. And he would say, oh, all right, cool. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't write it down. He wouldn't hold it against you. He would just leave. And his yeah. theory was like, it, it built so much trust knowing I could do that. It also, he, his thing was like, if you know you're bad, why do I need to observe and right. tell you you're having a bad day? You know. <laughs> exactly. You know. That's a really good point. Really good point. And he was, and when we would sit down to debrief, he would always say, like, here are your scores. If you disagree with them, let me know. Cause there's just as much of a chance that you're right. That, I'm right. And I grew so much working under him. And I had the freedom to try these new ideas, to try out wild ideas in my classroom, to to try because I had the confidence to know that if he came in, he would actually help me with them. And that if they went terribly, I could just wave him out. Yeah. You know, we talk. There's a lot of talk about social emotional learning in schools these days. That's another buzzword or term. And with that comes like, you know, this whole idea of safety students feeling safe and that idea somehow doesn't transfer to school leaders work with teachers like no no one seems to be maybe there are school leaders like you mentioned that that care about that stuff but uh, when it comes to the adults in the building who are on the front lines who are trying to uh, implement the vision that these principals have of course of doing right by children and helping them achieve their potential not many of them are talking about how to make these adults feel safe and happy in the building. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the problems and and the situation and the bureaucracy that gets in the way. Um, what do you think are some of the most pressing issues that schools, school leaders should start working on to kind of make things better? I think that we need to, there's two levels to this, right? I think the first level is just listening to what teachers and students want to do, right? Because teachers generally, I've, ne- I've rarely met any teachers who don't want to work really hard for kids and don't want to do whatever's in the best interest of kids. And they often have very different visions of what that looks like. But most teachers, I would say in my experience, I've been, this, I've been a teacher seven years, probably 90 to 95% of teachers, I would consider working really, really hard for kids. So if teachers have a different vision of what works or what they want to try, or if they don't want to do something, listen to them, or at least try to incorporate their feedback authentically because they are working directly with kids. They know the kids, they know what's going to, they, they have a better ability to predict what's going to happen, right? At my school, I know that and I don't know how it's going to play out, so I don't want to throw us under the bus, but we tried to roll out some initiative, and this was actually in a virtual meeting. And 
myself and at least five or six other people spoke up and basically said, I think that this is a bad idea that is asking kids to do a ton of work for very little benefit and also asking staff to do a ton of work for very little benefit to kids. And I think that they basically head patted us and are going to continue with the idea anyway. Right. Of course. Now, the idea itself is not even what's as important, but the idea of several teachers who you would should value, I think, saying this is not a good idea. Let's come up with something together. Right. So I think this that idea of listening to teachers. Right. And, and I would pair that with the second thing I was going to say was remembering that teaching is really, really, really hard and learning is really, really, really hard. So when a teacher says, like, I don't want to do this and it'll be a lot of work, or if a teacher tries a new lesson strategy and fails for a week, or even if kids have a bad week on an assessment or an an interim, not sort of like demonizing and saying like, oh, that's this teacher is bad. This is going just remembering that like, this is really hard work we're all trying to do. And there's a million other factors at play here. So like if a kid has a bad math interim assessment, sure, maybe I didn't do my best work this trimester, but also it could be the billion other factors at play, including luck, including chance, including whatever initiatives the administration has rolled out, which may or may not have been helpful. So yeah, I think those two ideas, remembering it's hard and listening to teachers would be amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by your recounting of uh, the, the anecdote from your school, because like the, the fact that the, the culture exists where you can say that this is not a good idea at a staff meeting, that's an unheard of thing. Um, many schools don't have that culture where you're allowed to say that. Because you'll be put on a shit list if you you become like oh this that group of teachers who always say <laughs> right. or complain yeah. or or the or yeah. the whiners and and you know anything that gets into that easy top down kind of implementation of something is often looked upon as a threat um, in a lot of environments. So at least in your environment, that seems oh, to not be the case. Totally. I, I got to give my principal, I don't need to put his name out there, but I don't know that he wants it out there, but I got to <laughs> give him a lot of credit because last year there was a time where something had, it was, oh, it was our first day in coming into the building. It was my first day in the building and I was a new staff member. So my whole year had been virtual and I was in the building and I just didn't think it was very organized. But what, you know, I didn't know where to go. I was lost. I didn't know what a classroom was in. And I sent him an email afterwards. I said, like, this really was a bad day for me. Like, I was my first day in this new community. This happened. And I really didn't feel, like, very welcome. And Mm -hmm. he responded and said, like, thank you so much. I needed to hear this feedback. I really appreciate it. Like, we'll work to be better about stuff like this in the future. And I just, that, the fact that he responded in that way was really validating. And I thought an excellent leadership move and made me trust him a lot as a person because he didn't sort of, you know, put me on the shit list. Yeah. (laughs) But I think also there's this thing that I've seen administrators do where they will sort of like do everything. I'm, I don't I don't have like a, a a good phrase for this, but they will sort of like they'll be like faux supportive. You know, like I've seen uh, one school I worked at, this uh, administrator came into a classroom of a first year teacher and it was not a great lesson, I guess. And basically like wrote a thing saying like this is we need to be holding students to high expectations like. I'm going like, I'll now you can meet with me every day after school to like, make sure that I'll support you in doing X, Y, Z. And it was this idea of like, he wasn't actually criticized. Mm -hmm. He was pretending that he was going to be the supportive administrator who was going to build this person up. But really he was just doing some, I think like covering his own ass for, you know, so he could like put on paper that he was helping this teacher, but the teacher didn't feel supported. They felt threatened by 
having their career threatened in the first week of their career. I feel like in um, education, we've kind of ruined the word support because now uh, when the people who work in the districts whose job it is to quote unquote support the schools, support means that we're going to we're coming to watch you. That's what it means. It doesn't mean Mm. that, oh, we're going to give you two extra teachers for two months so they could do small group instruction. That's not what support means. Support means that six people are going to start walking around your school, like watching every move you're making right. to figure out what you're doing wrong. Right. And they keep calling this support. And, right. you know, I, I just feel so like insulted by this whole notion that wait, you're calling it support, but you're not giving us an actual resource of any kind. You're basically just, sending cops <laughs> yeah yeah sending like sending cops and then rolling rolling out initiatives and then when the initiatives are pushed back upon being told that oh well then you must not want to support students right <laughs> and when it comes to initiatives being pushed back upon which you're we talking about before i always the i reference there's a scene from a movie it's my favorite probably one of my top five favorite movies remember the titans it's basically um it's early in the season and the one guy says to the other guy like you have a really bad attitude Right. Gary Bertier says to Julius, you have a bad attitude. And Julius basically says, like, well, attitude reflects leadership. And that's one of the things he says. And he also says, like, you keep talking about how I need to try harder for the team, but you don't treat me like we're teammates. Right. Right. And that's kind of how I feel a lot of the times in education is like, you know, you keep telling me that, like, oh, we're a team here. We're all rowing the same way. But then when I, you know, don't call out five hours before school i only call out two hours before school because that's when i wake up i'm like getting told that i didn't put in enough time for pto <laughs> when, right. when i'm a minute late to when i'm a minute late to my advisory because i have to run across the entire school because of the way you scheduled it <laughs> you tell me i'm late so that doesn't really feel like a team yeah there's um, so many little things like that yeah you know a lot of people um i don't know if this it's still true obviously the last two years have been really weird and, and strange because of the pandemic but uh, there had been a common refrain, especially in 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 a lot of education circles, that you know, there's a, just a sense of dissatisfaction with our schools and our school systems. Where do you stand with that? Do you feel that schools are like terrible and you know uh, not doing a good enough job, or like on on the continuum, where where do you see schools? Like they're an A plus or they're an F? It's a great question. Great question. I think that. Can I do a mastery-based grading system here? Can I can I divide up the grades the way that I would in my class, or do I have Both. to give it just one? Um, mastery-based. So, yeah. So I think that in terms of effort or participation, I think we're a solid A. I do think that awesome. almost everyone. I think everyone is. I think teachers are showing up and and trying really hard every day, and every and uh, you know, like I said, almost every teacher I've met really cares about kids. Will do. Will work insanely hard for kids will work way past their hours that they're mandated to, which is a weird teacher culture thing that people, I think, do sort of get competitive with like I yeah, in the building till nine. In that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I think that in terms of efficiency, we're closer to a D. Mm. Or an, and I would say in terms of what I would call like creativity and bravery. I think we're closer to a, like a D as well, maybe even an F for that one. Mm. Because I think I read so many articles this summer saying this is the time to rethink education. <laughs> yeah. This is the time to reimagine. Rethink, reimagine what education can look like. Yes, yes. We can't, the, the old normal was not working, so we can't go back to normal. Don't let it ever come back. <laughs> and then it came back. And it seems to have come back 
and, and there's several things happening, right? In politicians in New York City and New Jersey, everywhere that I are campaigning on that they got kids back in schools. Yeah. Which doesn't necessarily seem like it was a good thing to do. Right. <laughs> but but they but so then like our school, for example, is taking pride in that like we're in the building every day, right? Meanwhile, we have like interim assessments next week, which will all be done on the computer. <laughs> So like kids and, and I, you know, I teach high school. So I, I have these conversations with kids all the time. And again, these are not lazy kids. I, I, I talked to one kid who's a senior and he said to me, Mr. Elberg, last year I was, I have a job. So I was able to pick up a lot more hours and make more money for spending money and money that I can tell my family. I was able to do that a lot more because we just had school, you know, we're in, right. obviously we were home. So he was able to, he was like, I was able to work on my own schedule. I was able to get my classwork done at night or in the mornings. I don't feel like I learned much less last year. So explain to me why I'm now waking up at seven in the morning and taking a bus <laughs> and a train to get to school and being scolded all day for the way I sit in rows. Whereas last year I was able to play video games during the day, do my homework on my own schedule, work a lot more, spend more time with my family. And like what's going on? Like it, it sort of yeah. feels like the jig is up, right? Yep. It feels like the jig is up on school in general, on, on on old on what I would call old style of school. Of you come to school at seven, you stay there till four. Your classes are an hour long. You sit in rows. You do a lot of worksheets. And so again, I feel like every teacher is working really hard to make things happen for kids. But this year in particular, sort of feels like the jig is up. And again, all these articles about creativity and bravery, I feel like I'm someone who's pushing for like small changes, right? Things like more mastery-based grading. And that is like, you know, I got to fill out a TPS report and fill out and go through like 25 levels of bureaucracy before I change the way that I grade in my class. Yeah. And then it's like, well, then we're not really revolutionizing the system as a whole, if that's the way that we're thinking. But then I would also say the flip side of that is that I think a lot of people, and this is maybe more of a teacher Twitter thing than a real life thing, but a lot of people seem to be cynical, so cynical about the system that it's like, they don't want to do anything to improve test scores because tests as a whole are like rigged or not, not rigged, but tests as a whole are a bad idea. And my attitude towards that is like, well, this is the system we have. So like, we can work on two tracks to like change the system as a whole. But while we're in a system where test scores are rewarded, let's all make sure that our kids are getting the best scores that they can get. Mm -hmm. You know, let's not resign to, oh, well, this system is flawed. So let's not try hard. That seems silly to me also. Well, thank you. Our last question to every guest is um, if you could wave a magic wand to do something that would change in schools overnight, what would it be for you? So I was thinking about this question a lot over the course <laughs> of the last couple of days. I have so many things. I have so many things. <laughs> Can I just rattle off a bunch of small things? Yeah, do it. So first, this is my biggest, this may be the biggest, I would pay us all a lot more money. Awesome. Because why not? I mean, we like today's Veterans Day and we go in America, you can't go five minutes without being told to thank the troops. Right. But you don't, we don't really thank teachers often. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, get into like a comparison at all, but like every sporting event I've ever been to, we thank, you know, of, of we thank a veteran, we stand yep. up, we give a veteran. Even if we can't pay us more, why not at every baseball game? Can we not say this is our teacher of the week? This guy's been teaching in, you know, schools here for 30 years. You know, give a warm round of applause to, you know, Mr. Franklin or whatever. And he stands up and we all clap and Pete Alonso can go give him a jersey. Like that would Sounds be good. <laughs> sort of elevate our status. Pay would be one way to do that as well, I think. Kamala Harris ran on paying teachers more money. That was like her thing. 
Yeah, she's been quiet. I don't, I don't know where, <laughs> she, where she's gone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whatever happened to that woman who I voted for because she said she was going to pay teachers more money. I hope, I hope her career turns out to be successful. Everyone who talks about paying teachers more disappears. <laughs> yeah, it was her. It was, it was the number one thing that she was going to do. Um, so that would just be nice. Uh, that I don't know that it, that wouldn't certainly be a panacea, but it would just be nice. I think that. I would just sort of give so much more choice to teachers and students, especially on the high school level, hmm. right? I'll think about my own educational experience. I hate, hate Shakespeare. I, we had to read him in the sixth grade. And I remember being like, oh, cool, Shakespeare. And then I read the whatever play and I said, oh, this isn't for me. I don't care for this. <laughs> and then seventh grade, we did another unit on Shakespeare. And I was like, okay, I'll give it one more try. And again, I hated it. And again, eighth, ninth, we just kept every year. We, and it was like, I've already established that this is not for me. <laughs> and then it's again, it's similar to how admin talks to teachers. If I complained about it, it was like, oh, well, you're a complainer. Yo, you don't believe that like reading is valuable. It's like, no, 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 I do. But this is a bad idea. <laughs> so like, again, I mean, just so much more freedom for students to be able to choose what they want to study teachers to maybe be able to design some more of their own classes, right? I took a class in college that was one of my favorite classes called The Politics of HBO's The Wire. And it was an amazing class where we would watch an episode of The Wire or two for homework. And then we would have a reading or two and the readings would basically be about the issues that were in the show. Mm. And we would show up to class and discuss these ideas in depth and talk about how they affected actual individual people's lives. And it was so much more interesting than a class on politics of cities would have been because they were able to mm -hmm. incorporate this idea of the wire. So like, why not? And why not let a teacher write a curriculum for a class called, you know, politics through star Wars or basketball statistics or writing a novel. I mean, and again, these are not even necessarily things I would have chosen if I was a student, but why not? You know, why, why aren't kids taking classes if they're interested in it and how to build a social media profile, mm -hmm. right? I have a kid this year who's a TikTok, not a TikTok, um, Twitch. He's a Twitch streamer. And he has like 25,000 subscribers and he's wow. doing really well at it, but he struggles in, with conventional school. Why are we, why not give that kid some options to, to, to explore some of the things he's clearly really smart, really skilled and really interested in. Yeah. You know, and even again, even if you can't eliminate all standardized tests and revolutionize the whole system, why not let a teacher write a class in, in something like that and see if kids want to take it, you know? I don't, I don't know what the downside of those, of those ideas are. So those would be two of my magic wand ideas. And then more political person to me would say, what if we eliminated private schools for a few years? What would happen then? <laughs> I mean, I don't have kids, so it's easier for me to get, <laughs> to get wild and throw things out there. But what would happen? That's what would happen if all the kids? Yeah, what would happen if all of our kids <laughs> had to go to school together? Yeah. Right? What would happen then? Because it wouldn't be the same. That would be something that would get actual change happening very quickly, whether it would be good or bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very yeah. provocative idea. Thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed Absolutely. talking to you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Absolutely. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again. This was great.